Martin has been a mental health professional for longer than he cares to remember. For the last 10 years, he's been the founder and managing consultant at Clarity Stress and Trauma. When he isn't travelling to provide support after traumatic events, you'll find him delivering training courses or feeding his chickens. Adam has been a BBC journalist and presenter for over, well, put it this way, he had plenty of hair back then. Using his extensive BBC experience, his company, Adam Kirtley Media, provides media, crisis media, and presentation skills training across the world. He used to feed his own flock of chickens until the fox ate them all. Martin, I think everyone is in for a treat, if a moving treat today. We've got a great guest in Anna. Yes, I'm delighted that you've invited Anna to speak with us. I'm really looking forward to this. Can you explain... Yeah, who she is. Yes, Anna is somebody I've got to know because she came over from Ukraine. She wanted a little bit of help with her English and I've been doing that with her. And we've got to know each other quite well. She's absolutely lovely and I think we are going to hear some amazing stories. So Anna, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to Martin and me about your fascinating journey. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. So tell us a story of how you've ended up in a very rural village in Hampshire. <laughs> Well, that's quite a story. In Ukraine, um, we've got a war. It started 21st of February. And uh, in the morning, I woke up because of the bombing, obviously. I was living in Kiev. In two days, like, <laughs> you wake up uh, because of the sounds, and it's quite impressive and shocking, and you don't know what to do. And you just feel this wild fear about your life and you don't know what to do so me and my boyfriend we decided we had a car and we decided that we should leave maybe and um, it was a crazy situation on the roads so we left and um, we went to western part of Ukraine and decided that well we have a car we need to help other people to get some resources some medicine some um, food and so on so we started to drive to Kiev and back to Kiev and back until we got into car crash because it's it's been a panic on the roads so yeah we we ended up without a car and um, we started to live in small town in western part of Ukraine but it's been bombed too so uh, every night we've been walking up because of the sirens so how did you find somewhere to live? You left because you you just got an apartment that you were renting in yes. Kiev, hadn't you? And yes, then you had to suddenly true. leave it. So how did you find this place in, in Western Ukraine to live? Um, our friends. Our friends, they've been abroad at that time. So they just left a key for us and we've been living in the apartment. Martin? Anna, looking back now, was there a time in this whole passage of events when you noticed that you finally felt safe? And if so, when was that? Was that when you were still in Ukraine or only after you'd left the country? No, I think I felt more or less safe just months after I arrived to UK because I still had this feeling that something is going on and uh, you had Jubilee and you had um, fireworks and uh, <laughs> it was quite stressful and it's a new environment and your parents still there and your friends still there in Ukraine. So you wake up in the morning and you start reading the news and you just hope that you will not see uh, your cities out there being bombed and that your family is alive and your friends is still alive. It is stressful now even, but at least I feel safe about myself. 
So as you say, the point that you'd reached earlier on, describing how you'd left Kiev, but you were living in in a town in western Ukraine, clearly then you didn't yet feel safe. As you say, there were the sounds of siren and so on. So how did you get from there and what experiences did you have between then and finally being safe in England? I didn't sleep for quite a while and uh, I had panic attacks. So I, uh, like my boyfriend uh, and I, we decided that I need to leave the country in order to, I don't know, to keep myself (laughs) alive and safe and uh, feel myself better. And we started to look for opportunities and uh, I found out about um, UK home scheme uh, homes for Ukraine scheme, and uh, I decided to apply. I I wasn't sure if it's going to be okay, if it's if it's really safe, if like how it is working. But I just <laughs> I I took the risk, um, and I got an interview with the family around here where I live now, and they were so kind and so. I don't know, warm. And we, we know them and they are incredibly lovely people. Yes. Martin. They really are kind. Yes. And at that point, I uh, like realized that someone is waiting for me there and they prepared to meet me and they, they are ready to help me and to be this, I don't know, safety island for me. <laughs> so, yeah. And I started this journey and I got a visa after a week after applying. And they bought me a ticket to UK uh, and I arrived to London Gatwick. Uh, It was quite a journey. Yeah, and now I've been here for more than two months already. And if I could just take you back to Ukraine in those early days, especially the first night, the 24th Mm -hmm. of February, which is a day we'll never forget because it's our daughter Evie's birthday. So it was her 18th birthday, (laughs) the day uh, the war started. When you, you know, you're young, you're in your mid-twenties, you've got a boyfriend, you've set up a flat, an apartment, Mm -hmm. uh, your life is ahead of you, you're a professional. And then that happened. I mean, that morning in the middle of the night, the early morning, when you heard those bombs, missiles for the first time, Mm -hmm. what what thoughts were going through your head? We are going to die. (laughs) I mean, people my age, they have grandparents who lived through Second World War and we know their memories and we know what routine they have. They always preserve food, they always prepared that something is going to happen and we, we, we've never believed that sometimes it's going to happen to us. And we thought and we believe that we are living in this bright um, future, in peace and uh, you just... One morning you wake up and you realize that this history just repeat itself and uh, you need to do the same that your grandparents did. <laughs> and it's quite shocking and frustrating because you're not prepared for this. You've never thought about it. You don't have, uh, I don't know, you don't have food, you don't have a lot of money, you don't know what to do and uh, where to go because everywhere in Ukraine is unsafe and you... Like, I don't have children even, and it, it was really hard and scary for me, but I, I couldn't even imagine how it would be if I had a family. Martin, can I ask you a question about what Anna has so brilliantly described and actually horrifically described? 
the feelings of not feeling safe even once you got here, hearing maybe those fireworks, which of course was celebratory for the Jubilee, but suddenly going, oh my goodness, ba loud bangs. Is this normal? Is, is Anna completely normal? And is it understandable what she's feeling about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and especially because of some of the things that she was telling us at the end there. What I'm listening out for when Anna was describing her experience, as you asked her, you know, starting back at the beginning of the war in Kiev, is I'm, I'm listening out for the subjective experience that people have. And it's quite difficult because what we're talking about here is something that is psychologically traumatic. Because if something is psychologically traumatic, that doesn't mean that person's reactions are a sign of some kind of illness or disorder. It just means that they're a normal person. If something traumatic happens to you, you're going to react to that. But the reactions that we have, can, can they, they can last a long time. They can be quite distressing. They can be quite disruptive, interfering with how we want to live our lives and so on. And it helps people sometimes just to have an understanding of that. It doesn't mean that they've got post-traumatic stress disorder or that they're even going to have. It would be very strange if somebody were to stop thinking about an experience like that. If they were to stop remembering it, that would be quite peculiar. But what I was listening to there, which is very interesting, is that um, I, was, I was listening out for three things. And these are three things which are quite characteristic of traumatic experiences. And the first one is that something is very, very frightening. And when Anna said that at first we thought that we might die, then as soon as somebody says that, then what that demonstrates quite clearly without any argument or any discussion is that was terrifying. They were obviously having a terrifying experience because you think, you know, we might be killed. And then the next thing I'm looking out for is whether or not the person describes a feeling of helplessness. And this is something which people come across if they've had, say, an accident when they were a, a passenger in a vehicle of some kind. Could be anything, could be anything from a car or a taxi or to a plane or anything like that, a feeling of helplessness. Or in a situation where other people have got weapons, whether it's whatever, pointing a knife at you or firing missiles at you, that sense of helplessness can be very profound. And Anna was talking about, you know, not knowing what to do, what to do for the best and talking about how older generations might have a better idea because they lived through a previous war. So there was this helplessness as well. Now, the third thing that I haven't heard mentioned, and actually I hope isn't mentioned, but might be, is that sometimes people have a horrific experience. They witness something horrific. And of course, if somebody was to see death or destruction then that would be a very good example of something horrific which is likely to happen in a way. Anna I don't think you have seen that but of course we've all seen the, the pictures from Butcher yeah, or Mariupol yeah. and you have lost friends haven't you? Yes yes I have lost friend he died under mm. missiles uh, near Mariupol yeah mm. yeah I mean even when something like that happens and and you know people are People are affected by trauma, either if it happens to them, or if they witness it, or if they discover that it has happened to people that they care deeply about. And if you discover that it's, it's happened to somebody you care deeply about, of course, first of all, you might then begin to imagine what it was like, even if the things you're imagining are awful things that you don't want to think about, things that you would never have wanted to see, but you naturally imagine. We all would do the same thing. 
And in these circumstances, as Adam's describing, of course, all you have to do is turn the television on or look on your phone online. And there are images and video everywhere of the destruction going on in Ukraine. And how does that make you feel when you see it? Do you, do you put the TV on or do you try to avoid seeing what's going on? No, I... Um well, I try to make pauses in uh, reading the news, but still I I am on social media and I see what my friends are posting and I know what is happening and I see these pictures. Almost every night I imagine these pictures applied to my family, to my parents, to me. I imagine how, how could I die, how it would feel to die, <laughs> to disappear, how it would feel if my, I don't know, parents die and what should I do in that case and how to live through this. Your mind tries to prepare yourself to other horrific things. Yes, because one of my questions, Anna, um, was going to be to say to you, um, do you think about it a lot of the time, even, yeah, even when something hasn't happened to remind you? because obviously some things will be reminders, messages from people and the news and so on, as you said. But even when there isn't a reminder, do you find that your mind goes back and you think a lot of the time about what has happened in Ukraine and what happened to you? Yes, constantly. Yeah, <laughs> constantly. Yeah. It's hard to avoid it. I don't know. I always think about death. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty impressive how your mind can be on the same topic uh, every day. I mean, you're, you're trying to work and uh, the moment you lose your focus, your concentration, the mind goes back to these events and to this topic, yeah. You've said you've left your parents, you've left your boyfriend, you've got friends, uh, yes. as we all do. I mean, you're here. I suppose this is a, an odd question, but is there any sense, and there shouldn't be, is there any sense of guilt that you're here and they are stuck back there? Yes, of course. I mean, I would <laughs> I would take everybody with me. <laughs> and uh, you feel helpless because you don't have resources or enough power to do that, to make them free, to make them leave the country and leave safely here, for example. Of course. But I, I try to keep in touch every time and to make sure that they have everything and they have money and they have food and they feel okay. Yeah. That that feeling of guilt and responsibility, I think, is one of the most awful things about the experience of anything traumatic. And the strange thing about it is that people usually have that feeling of guilt and responsibility when they haven't actually done anything wrong at all. It's a strange thing that our mind creates that feeling for us. Even when we've done nothing wrong, our mind creates that feeling. And then because it creates the feeling, it leaves you kind of thinking you know why do I feel like this and your mind then starts searching for the explanation and of course you think back and you think well what's the thing that I've done wrong that I shouldn't have done or the thing that I that I didn't do that I should have done and as you say you know you might in this case think well you know I should have been able to bring you know people to safety with me I should have been able to take people out of the country you know there's always going to be some reason that people will find to explain why I feel like this but the point is you don't feel like this because you've done something wrong you feel like this because you've had a traumatic experience and your mind then generates that feeling it's quite a cruel thing that that happens but it is it is very common so your boyfriend you're 25 so presumably he's a similar age mm -hmm. to you that's the age that men could be called up now your president Volodymyr Zelensky has said mm -hmm. he wants an army of a million people now mm -hmm. does it constantly go through your mind that your boyfriend may eventually be called up yeah. I know he hasn't been yet 
Yes, I think about it a lot, but um, I just understand that he's going to be at the last wave. He didn't have any experience in armed forces. I think that he will be the last one who will be at armed forces. But this yeah. war has gone on and on, you know. Yeah, it yeah. It could happen, couldn't it? Yeah, and I know that my ex-husband, he's now in armed forces uh, nearby Mykolaiv, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I have a lot of people down there. I was very affected by something. I'm not even involved in it. But, uh, Martin, north of Dnipro, which is your hometown, I think, Dnipro, uh, north of Dnipro, and I can't remember the name of the town, there was a beautiful, like, playground water park type Mm -hmm. place for for kids, and they showed pictures of it. uh, And it was absolutely lovely. And then now it's completely destroyed. I'm not Ukrainian. I don't have to live with that. But when you see places you know you played in, maybe, or you had mm-hmm. a nice barbecue at or something, and suddenly it's just nothing, that must be really hard. Well, yeah, because you know these places. You 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 walk through these roads and you know every detail there. And uh, when it's ruined, you just feel like you lack your home. You feel that your home is destroyed and you don't have the place to return to. And it's like someone uh, is breaking your childhood or something like that yeah it's it leaves you with this feeling that you are all alone and um so what you've got there is potentially a combination of things for you to have to try and understand and and manage and cope with you've got the, the trauma of your experience during the time that you of course were feeling in danger and were afraid that you might be killed then as you've just described you've got the loss caused by all of the changes the the destruction and then of course there's the possibility of the loss of life as well and no doubt you'd feel a sense of sadness and grief over all of the ukrainians who die but of course if anybody you know anybody from that group of people and even though it's important to say here i think that even though we do care about strangers so your your countrymen and women who you didn't know but who have suffered and died in this war we care about those but of course it affects us more when it's people from within that little group of people the people that are closest to us in, in a way the people who many thousands of years ago you might have called our tribe because you know we we developed in tribes with a fairly small group of people and those are the people that we have these very very strong bonds to and of course if something terrible happens to them that we feel it much more deeply so there are many different ways in which you're having to struggle psychologically to cope with the experience of your country's war Mm. i wonder whether that is partly the same reason that the eu and the uk have taken such an interest because you know i've seen your uh your photos and your social media. I haven't seen it, but I know you're on it. Life in Ukraine actually at peace looks pretty similar to us. Yes. You're like my daughter, Evie, you know, you, you, you do the same things. You have the same fun. And and I wonder whether, I don't know, Martin, but I wonder whether that's why we have such a sympathy and empathy with you because, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, you kind of look like us. Am I being silly there, Martin? No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And uh, I think that since the war begun, we've begun to feel closer still to Ukrainians. And here we are, back before February, 
if we'd have said, oh, in July, you're, you're going to have a Ukrainian national living down the road from you, sitting in your office, Adam, talking to you about her experiences, living in the village with the people who are there. And of course, we know there are lots of other people who have the same experience across the country as Ukrainian refugees mm. have come to the UK. But I think that that feeling of, oh, yes, they're actually quite a lot like us is getting stronger and stronger, as you say, because of all of the information that we've received about, you know, Ukrainian people and their normal life and what it's like and how seriously it's being being changed and destroyed by what's happening. I asked you when we were just chatting a few weeks ago, I asked you whether you were going to go to the neighbouring village where there was a drop-in centre every Friday for mm -hmm. Ukrainians to, to go and chat and meet or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you said something very interesting to me. You said, no, it's it's not for me. I don't want to go because some people there speak Russian. Yeah, That I found fascinating because speaking Russian isn't the same as supporting the evil that Russia has perpetrated on Ukraine, but you found it too difficult. Can you give us a bit yeah. of insight into that? Yeah, sure. Um, since war started and even before that, when someone is speaking Russian language, it's triggering because it's the language of your enemy. And after war started, it just became stronger. And I, I'm i trying to um, feel calm about it and uh, to understand uh, people who've been speaking in Russian for a long time. But still, uh, for me, when someone's speaking Russian, well, you, when you speak some language, you bring its culture alive and uh, you think differently and you um, you feel and act differently as when I speak English uh, it's totally different and my mindset changing and uh, everything is different so when you speak Russian you are a part of it you are the part of uh, Russian culture and you kind of you feeding Russian culture and you just let it expand because everybody knows that if you learn Russian, you will be able to um, to get acquainted with other people in east of uh, Europe and so on. And nobody <laughs> speaks and learn Ukrainian because they think that nobody speaks it. But it's not true. But th they have this image that Russian is the brilliant, I don't know, culture and uh, language to speak and to learn. I don't like that. Can you unpick that for us, Martin, what the emotions that Anna is feeling there? Yes, certainly. It's it's um, it's something, broadly speaking, is often referred to as kind of avoidance. And it's, just as she's explained, it's wanting to avoid anything that is, you know, a direct reminder. And, of course, from her point of view, you know, anything really associated with, as she says... Russia, not just their armed forces, but the Russian culture, now firstly feels as if, you know, that that's the evil side. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And hearing people speaking the language um, is all part of that. But also it's just a powerful reminder of the experience. And it's a little bit like her talking about, I think you said earlier on, uh, Anna, you sort of pause on choosing to listen to the news or watch the news sometimes. Of course, you still want to know broadly what is going on, but maybe you're a little bit careful about just how much news about the Ukraine you watch because you could just be watching the same thing over and over and it could make you feel very sad and upset and, and maybe you're not really gaining anything. So sometimes people at times like this avoid all sorts of different things. I've known people say to me, I don't even like to look at, oh, 
personal possessions or items of clothing and things that I brought with me because it's it's a reminder. I remember when I wore that maybe on the day that the war started or something like that. Anything like that which is a reminder becomes something which is you know, painful and you want to keep away from it. And as Adam was saying, you've got the potential advantage of spending time with people who are from Ukraine and the benefit that that might bring. But actually that benefit is offset by the kind of emotional distress that would come from having to hear Russian spoken and finding that, you know, a difficult thing to cope with. Mm-hmm. Anna is the loveliest person. I mean, we've got to know each other quite well and our family, etc. But however lovely you are, presumably inside of yourself, you have the capacity to hate of course. Not not just to hate what Vladimir Putin's lot are doing, but to hate Russia and anything Russian. Yeah, I think it's pretty natural in a situation like that. And considering the whole our history, I I am actually a historian. I I have a degree in history, and uh, I've been learning history pretty good. And uh, I know that throughout all of our history, Russia been playing a bad game with us. They always tried to destroy us and to destroy our culture and to expropriate our uh, background and our cultural things. So yeah, I think that I hated Russia before war, but now I hate it even more. Yeah. And those wounds, because you won't be the only one, Yeah. those wounds, once this dreadful war is over, and it will be over one day, it's going to take generations to, to I heal. I hope so. I hope that we will not forget this. Because I know that these people who are speaking Russian and some of people that had maybe some relationships with Russian people, they can still think about that we are friends, we are brothers or something like that. But we are not. We are not and we are really different. And I think that it would be better if everybody understood that. But Russians our mothers and brothers and sisters and Russians have bad days. I'm talking ordinary Russians here. You know, uh, Russian military conscripts have died and their mothers have had to be told. I mean, they're human. I suppose what I'm saying is we're all human beings. But when it comes to Russia, you have a slight problem with that, I think. Yeah, I realise that they are human beings. I just think that they, like, you see, in my I have a picture of our mentalities and we are quite different because we've been an agriculture uh, country throughout the whole history and uh, they've been nomads like old times and uh, they don't have this culture of um, and attitude to preserve what you have and try to build something new. They better will go and steal it or get it from somebody else's land or something like that. That is why it's hard to empathize them because I feel the difference. And of course, I knew, I don't know how it is now, but I knew some good Russians, yeah, as uh, it's you can say that. But I think that like we live in our own country and build our own happiness and they should do the same. And if it will be in their country and they will not touch any countries beside them, it's going to be okay. But it will not be the same, I think. Mm. With my best BBC journalist hat on, I should say we have no Russian to give their side of the story here in terms of them, their mm-hmm. own emotions, etc. But Martin, you know, Anna is a lovely person. She she doesn't have an evil bone in her body. But touch that nerve about Russians 
and yeah, I wouldn't say the worst side. It's completely understandable. But is it understandable the way she feels there? Yeah, it's entirely. I mean, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier on when I mentioned tribe. If we imagine back to much more primitive times when we were living in a tribe and we needed to be very careful about our resources. Now, let's imagine down the river from us, there would be another tribe of people just like us. But were they our friends? Well, probably not. Probably they were our rivals and we had to fight them for resources for, you know, use of the river and the local livestock that we needed to eat and so on. And so sadly, this seems to be part of the human condition, this need to be able to, in some cases anyway, invade, to take other people's land and resources and so on, which is what seems to be happening here. And it's a horrible thing because as you're describing, it leads to large numbers of people hating large numbers of other people and that that hate then goes on through the generations. What I wanted to ask Anna, if if you don't mind me, is that uh, we were talking there about how one of the things you've avoided is uh, having to hear people speaking Russian. Are there other things that you've noticed that you now have been avoiding because it's an unpleasant reminder? Well, I think that it is the most triggering factor, I think, yeah, Russian language. Mm -hmm. And when I when mm -hmm. I see that some Russian Russian people, they take a guide um, in the center of Winchester, for example, to see some castles or churches or something like that. I feel really angry. I feel angry that they have their lives as it was before, because it's just, I don't know, I don't feel like it's fair. I feel that Somebody's playing not by the rules, and it makes me angry, yeah. This will be over one day, one way or the other, and we don't know. We, we, we pray that it's soon, but we don't know. Martin, a question for you, maybe to help Anna. She's going to go home one day, and she's going to be reunited with her family and her boyfriend, and life will have to start back in Ukraine, unless you both choose to come here, which would be lovely. Um but life will have to return to some sort of normality. How is picking up those pieces going to be psychologically for Anna and, and, and all of her colleagues and friends that have dealt with this? Well, it's, I mean, it's very difficult and it's really complicated, isn't it? Because as we've just been saying, the understandable memories and distress and resentment from the war, from being victims in the war, will not be forgotten quickly. And as we know, you know, communities and nations want to honor the past. They want to honor their dead or their armed forces and so on. And so, you know, we make a point still, don't we? Every uh, November the 11th, mm -hmm. Armistice Day and so on, of remembering events that happened more than 100 years ago now in our country and many other things since. So that will all go on. Now, whether or not there will be a thawing of the relationship, a friendlier relationship between the leaders of Russia and the leaders of Ukraine in such a way that they're able to actually work cooperatively together and be able to create a friendship between the nations, that would be the great test. But that, be what, mm. this is what we are trying to avoid. Mm. I mean, we don't want a friendship with Russia. We don't well, want I'm, to be again in this kind of relationships. We just mm. want to be in our own country and don't have any things with Russia because you see maybe it's hard for you to comprehend when it's um, when it's not your history 
but we've been having wars with Russia for a long period of time. It's been ages, and it's always returning, and they will have another imperialistic leader, and they will have another war with us, because they cannot accept our independence and that we live good without them. And they always have this, I don't know, weird... Um, weird things for us <laughs> and we like the best thing is just to avoid them just don't be uh, dependent on them and i i don't yeah the problem the, prob the problem you have is they're the other side of the border aren't they yeah well yeah but then you look to the west now don't you yeah. to, yeah, to nato and, and to and the we've eu been always which looking upsets the that. russians yeah well <laughs> yeah, it it upsets Russians. You talked. It, I, I, it was a really interesting talking about the fact that you see Russians on holiday and and you know it's not fair. But and you can be honest here. Our lives have been actually enriched by you coming here, but we're going to go on a summer holiday as a family, and our lives continue pretty much in the UK as British people as normal. Does that annoy you in a way? Hmm. Well, I think just in just when I feel the most vulnerable uh, and I get some bad news, yeah, it's it's a little bit annoying. But um, we don't time, blame you, by the way, Martin, do we, for feeling that at all? Oh no, not not in the least. No, and I don't blame anyone to have their own lives. I mean, it's nice to see that life is going on, like nature is going their way and you going through your life uh, peacefully and uh, everything is fine it's just you just don't want to be in a situation when you have this problem yeah and you didn't do anything wrong to have this and uh, somebody is just killing your people just because they think they can and they don't want to play by the rules and they want to demonstrate their power or something yeah I think that the most angry I feel about countries that still support Russia or buying products from them, because, you know, it's a small world. And if we are all playing by the rules of democracy and uh, this bright, peaceful world, everybody should play by this. Well, rules. Is, there are many countries that don't play by the rules of democracy yeah. and we all know who they are. I mean, yeah. they, they, don't, they don't care about democracy. You do. We do, but they don't. And unfortunately, we live in that horrible world. I was just thinking about the things that Anna was saying then, because in my mind, as she was talking, I was, I was thinking that maybe for us, our country, the closest analogy I can think of is um, the relationship between Britain and Germany. And if you think back to the middle of the 20th century, when there'd been two, two terrible wars fought between lots of countries, but certainly Britain and Germany against each other. Now, since then... You know, they both became members of, uh, you know, European Union and so on. We're not anymore, but the point is we would all agree they're allies now. But, yes, Anna's right that to think that something like that is going to happen to include Ukraine and Russia now, of course, seems so idealistic, so unlikely. But, of course, that level of hate and resentment between our two nations, Britain and Germany, of course, that was there for many, many years and uh, to some extent still exists throughout parts of Europe. So, you know, these things are very, very difficult to imagine happening, but not completely impossible. But it's just it's just so sad that with every day of this war that passes, a good relationship between the countries becomes harder and harder to achieve. And just so sad that that will have an impact on millions of people for many decades to come. 
Mm. Your thoughts on that, Anna? I feel that I'm getting irritated and angry because of you saying that. <laughs> because I don't know what example to present so you could understand. Because, well, this feeling, this unpleasant feeling that you cannot trust Russians, it's been for maybe 200 mm. years between our countries and it didn't disappear yet and uh, it will not especially now and i hope it will not because when you don't remember your past experience you continue to make the same mistakes and uh, what i see now for example at germany germany is supporting russia in some way i mean Germany is still buying the oil and they don't send the weapons that they've been promising to Ukraine. So I don't think that you can trust somebody who's been treated you badly uh, in the past. I think you have you have some things uh, with, I don't know, French people, for example, yeah? And now it's everything is good, but you still feel unpleasant a little bit about French people. And... Maybe it's not the same, but we have plenty of reasons not to like yeah. Russians. I, know, I, th I think what, yeah. everything you're saying, Anna, yeah. is completely fair. I, I suppose I'm just saying it would be nice if the world was better. But uh, yes, you're right, because actually, as I say, in the, in the 20th century, you know, historically, if you looked at our country, Britain, you'd say that our main enemy during the 20th century was Germany. If you go back to previous centuries, then it was often France. Your near neighbours are so often your rivals, you know, for resources, for, you know, in, in military conflicts and so on. And as you say, for, for the Ukraine. But I know a little of the history and, of course, the, the famine caused by, you know, Stalin and the Russians and the death of millions of Ukrainians in, in the past. And, and it's been an absolutely, you know, horrific history. Let me ask you, Anna, try to be as objective as you can here. Mm -hmm. How do you think this is all going to pan out? What do you think will happen? And do you think Russia will be emboldened to go beyond Ukraine. Mm, and do you want me to try to be objective? <laughs> it's a really hard thing to ask you yeah, to do. It, but you've got a great no, perspective um, from, from your country. I just, uh, I just cannot think about it because I see that um, for Russia it's hard to stop. It's hard to stop and say that, yeah, we've been, we've been doing bad things and we need to stop now. I don't think it's possible. I think that they need to cover it with something. They need to have a good reason to stop this war. They need to be out of resources or something should happen for them to stop it. Because for them, it's a demonstration of the power f to the whole world. It's not about even Ukraine only. It's about their power and how strong they are. If we want to stop them, we need to give them a reason to stop, not just telling them to stop. They need to feel that they are all alone and they are out of resources and they don't have the power to continue. And I think it is possible if they will have more weapons and if they will have more resources from China or from Germany or from um, other countries, I think they can continue to go far, not only Ukraine, 
because I mean Poland nearby us, and they can and the take... Baltic countries. Of yeah, course. why not? That would be World War Three, though. Yeah, it? and that must I just be hope that must be scary, given what you've experienced in Ukraine. Yeah, the rest of us maybe should be a bit worried. Yeah, but I just hope that they don't have such power weapons as uh, West has. I just hope that they will be out of resources and nothing happens. You are amazing to be so sort of intelligent about it and and yes of course a little bit emotional but you you do seem to me to be you, you've said you're angry and you can't hear russian speak but i'm amazed how calm you are actually well i just realize my emotions i i understand how how i feel and why i feel like that and i try to i try to make to make my life easier with that because when you're constantly in your emotions and you're just lost in them, when you can speak about it and uh, to realize what kind of feeling I'm experiencing, it's just easier to get to the truth and to get benefit out of it. Quite often my interest is in people who've had a traumatic experience and then that experience has ended. And the issue is people understanding and then being able to manage that and recover from it. Of course, for Anna, this hasn't ended okay, she has been able to escape from the Ukraine. She didn't really want to escape from Ukraine. That's her country. You know, she, didn't, she, she wasn't trying yeah. to, to leave Ukraine. And it's a wonderful country. <laughs> yeah. And even though she's now here in, in the UK and, and is safe, of course she has so many people that she cares about deeply that she's worried about. And as we've just been saying, we don't know how long this is going to go on. We don't know how much danger those people will be in. So for her... Although she can go through a bit of a recovery from the experiences that she had in Kiev and, and, and the rest of uh, Ukraine, the other part of this hasn't finished for her and she doesn't know what it's going to include. So, of course, she is still having to cope with the fact that the trauma is happening to her friends and her family and her country, even though she herself is safe. And so she doesn't yet know what the future holds. Yes, that's mm. true. <laughs> Do you cry a lot? Yeah. <laughs> you weep every day. <laughs> really? Because you're always very smiley when I see you. Yeah. Do you feel I, it welling up? Yes, uh, but when I'm alone, I mean, it, it's usually in the evening time or night time when I just wake up because I feel bad or I feel guilty or I feel dreadful or I feel, I don't know, fear or guilt or something like that. Uh, but yeah, when i with people, it's hard to... I know. I mean, I want to integrate, and when you want to integrate, you need to be pleasant. You need to be, like, best best yourself, yeah. And, uh, yeah, when you have this time to think about everything that happened, and when you're finally alone, it's hard to just stop. You need to bring this emotion can I, to... Can... Martin, does she need to... Inter... Sorry, you know, I was just going to say, does she need to be on her best behavior with us as you integrate presumably you can be more yourself and warts and all as it were well I mean, it depends on the kind of person you are and as the sort of person of course he wants i think to get on with people and she has the advantage of already having very good english oh thank you and so her life here will be i imagine more interesting and hopefully more pleasant and she'll be able to find re rewarding work and so on if she's able to as she describes you know, integrate into British culture a bit more, but without, of course, losing her Ukrainian culture. What I wanted to ask, if I might, Anna, is that you were just talking then about, of course, you know, when you said when you're on your own, perhaps then, you know, when there's nobody around, you don't have to put on the smile and the brave face, the friendly conversation and so on. Are there things that you find are a helpful distraction 
that means that you don't spend too much time thinking about the sadness of what has happened? Are there things you have found that you can do which help to distract you? Mm. Well, I think it's the right approach from people around me. I mean, family, they've been really good at it especially James, because they are not pushing you to tell about your emotions, but they let you know that they are here for you, that you can speak with them, that you can cry with them. But what I'm afraid of is, well, you know, when you, for example, uh, living with uh, people with depression, for example, yeah, person with depression who is constantly feeling um, tired and uh, not very social and in a bad mood it makes you feel tired too pretty soon because you you don't know how to help you feel helpless and uh, you don't know how to (laughs) manage it and how to get along with this person so I think with people who came from Ukraine it can be the same scenario and I try to avoid it. That is why I'm trying to be more cheerful and uh, more like funny and glad because I understand that, yeah, I need to feel safe and uh, be in pleasant environment, but people who host me, they need to feel good too. They need to feel that they, like, that I give them something too instead, that they can feel okay with me. Yeah, that's really good. As you say, you have to kind of play a role in a way, don't you? You have to sort of play the role of somebody who is, you know, is kind of grateful. And as you say, that... The, well, you know. no, I, I am grateful. Oh, yeah, I've, of course. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but if you yep. were if you were instead the person who is always sad and, and quiet and traumatized and worried and so on, then people might sympathize with you. But they, but, get but, but they might also yeah. keep away from you as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. true. To end on a, a, a jollier note, <laughs> and you've been fantastic. It's been such a, a fascinating discussion. But to end on a, a jollier note, what do you think of us Brits? Oh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> really, um, I thought that Brits are more arrogant than they are. But I find that your British culture you build it on kindness because even when i read your books children books for example yeah with you i read a lot about kindness and about sharing and about love to each other and i feel it from people i feel really welcome here and when i go to the shop to buy coffee or just to ask what direction i need to go i always feel that people are satisfied and happy and they willing to help and it's been a it's been a nice journey in England, yeah. We are a bit strange, though. Yeah, sure. You have <laughs> you have your own Martin's humor. Martin's certainly very strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's it's really easy to get along with you. I mean, you're not that different from us. I I understand your jokes. I understand your culture. It's easy to understand your language and your behavior. And uh, yeah, I, I think. Um, I think that I feel more comfortable and more welcome than in USA or France or Italy. I've been there and I feel the difference. Yeah, of course, people are different uh, in every country, but still, uh, I got lucky here. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Thank you so much for, for your time and, and telling your stories. And hopefully, one day you'll be able to bring your boyfriend or your family over to see us. But maybe 
we can come and see you. Yes, please I'd come and see, see our country because it's really beautiful and we have everything and it's a lot to see and explore. So I hope that everybody that I met here will arrive to Ukraine someday. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this time. Do follow us to get an alert when our next podcast is available. And you can contact Martin on martinalderton at claritysat.com. And Adam on adamkirtleymedia.co.uk. Join us again next time.